Thanks. Good morning again, and welcome to uh, Faith Evangelical Church. Those that are joining us online, welcome. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a gut-wrenching idea. Murder. You know, when you watch National Geographic, I don't know if you like to watch the Discovery Channel, National Ge- Geographic or whatever, and where the animals, the predators... <clears throat> seek to feed. It's the way God has programmed them. And what they do is they often scope out, let's say, a flock of deer, bison, whatever it is that they eat. And they let all the strong ones go and they wait until the end of the pack where the weak and sometimes the wounded and sometimes the young are straggling behind. And that's where they go and they attack. And I think abortion... Uh, When I think of abortion, I think of that. And the reason why is because Satan, as as much as you have probably heard this in the past and maybe even read it in the scripture, I'm going to give it to you bluntly. He hates you. He may seem like he likes you when maybe you're engaging in his world. For those of us that have been there, we know what it's like. But he has a very special reason for hating you. And the reason he hates you is because you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of his enemy. And so what he does is he goes after the weak and the vulnerable to attack that image. And that's what I think of when I think of abortion. And I also think of the the commandment, thou shall not murder, the sixth commandment. That is a command to us. Of course, not to murder, but also to protect life. And this is the battle, folks. We have to stand against abortion. We have to stand, whether it's politically, whether it's physically going to the clinics, or whether it's supporting or going and volunteering, and especially prayerfully. Do I think, um, uh, Miss Claudia said something very profound in our meeting the other day on our Wednesday night. She says, you know, abortion, the legality of it isn't going to stop it. We need to fight against the legality of it for sure. It's part of our job as a Christian. But this is a sin that runs really deep. And what you just saw is, I believe, a way where people can avoid the embarrassment, the avoid the, the, the shame, and they could just go out and rampantly have sex or, or not, or maybe it's a mother with five kids that says, how am I going to ever have another child? But instead of having to deal with it, she can just take two little pills. And that's going to become more and more and more available. So let's get into the fight. Let's get involved. Pray and seek the Lord on how he would like to use you in that battle. So let's turn to John chapter 19, and we are going to continue... Um, our trek through the Gospel of John, and we are right smack in the middle of the crucifixion. We're going to be in John chapter 19, verses 31 to 37. In this context right here, Jesus is now hanging on the cross. Shamefully, he has bore the sin of the world, hanging on the cross naked. Last week, he said the words, It is finished. It is paid in full. And he gave up his spirit. Now in verse 31, right after he had done that, the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, 
so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. The writer talking about himself, which is John. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. John wants you to believe the statements that you have just heard. He wants you to believe in Jesus, but he wants you to specifically believe the statements that you just heard in this verse. You know, verse 36 and 37, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys remember, and I, I've heard that this game show has been revived, but when I was younger, we used to watch To Tell the Truth. It was a classic game show where a celebrity panel is presented with three different people, all who claim to be the same person with the same unique talent or unique job or unique achievement. One of them is sworn to tell the truth the real person, while the other two are not. The object of the game is to try to fool the celebrities into voting for one of the two imposters. Some of the uh, contestants were very unique, of course. One was uh, the fastest jumper in America. Another was a descendant of Alexander Hamilton. And there was even a professional cuddlist. (laughs) Now, if you want to have some entertainment, look up cuddlists. You can hire a cuddlist for yourself if you want, and it's strictly non-sexual, and you can go cuddle with people and tell them all your problems, and they will cuddle with you. So, So yes, cuddlists have even been on the show. Regardless, the two imposters and the person telling the truth, they are to convince the panel that they are, in fact, the real person who possesses this special talent or ability. Now, a very similar sort of game began to be played in the early church within a few years after Jesus ascended into heaven, figuratively, of course. People started to question, who is the real Jesus? Was the real Jesus a human being? Was he just a spirit? Was he an illusion? Just after the middle of the first century A.D., and right before John had written his gospel here, forged and fabricated letters began to circulate throughout the churches that promoted false doctrines about Jesus' humanity. They emphasized Jesus was not a human. Now, this was going against the scriptures and the orthodox teachings of the apostles. We had letters such as the Acts of John, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter, and several others, all with one common thread. Jesus is not a real human being. He really didn't come in a physical form. What you saw during his ministry was an illusion. 
Now, we may say, oh, come on, Pat, that's, we all know that's not true. Well, keep listening. <clears throat> Throughout the New Testament, <clears throat> we see the defense against this false teaching. Throughout almost all of the letters, specifically in the writings of John. Unfortunately, this doctrine of Jesus being a spiritual manifestation became more fully developed as time went on. It became something known as Gnosticism or Docetism. Both are a part of a religious dualistic system that holds matter, anything matter, anything physical as evil and only the spiritual, the spiritual realm is that which is good. Matter is evil, spiritual, spirituality is good. And so was the real Jesus a spirit body walking on the earth? Was he born without real human flesh? Were all the acts and sufferings of his life, including the crucifixion, mere appearances? This is what this false doctrine asserts. Now, our passage today deals specifically with this error. John, writing his gospel again in the late first century, he gives us a peek into, into the beginnings of this false teaching. It was already circulating around. But more importantly, as we look to apply this, we see Solomon, as he says in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. It's funny, it's so important to learn church history because when you study church history, you see that Satan is up to his old tricks now that he was doing then, he just shapes it and forms it and, and, and presents it according to the time and according to the culture. Now, Gnosticism and Docetism were unequivocally rejected at the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And however, why I'm saying this, why I think this is so important is because remnants of this false doctrine are still permeating Christianity today. So this, although this was aimed at the audiences back then, of course, it's for all time. The scripture is for every single culture, every single generation. So what we're going to look at today is John's defense for the real Jesus, meaning his real humanity, his real physicality. And we'll also see what John can teach us about how we can be on guard against these Gnostic ideas that, again, will pop up and do pop up within the church. Now, these ideas are so dangerous because they prevent us from engaging, or I shouldn't say prevent us, they sort of, they make it a secondary thing to engage our physical world with the gospel. The most important thing is the spiritual. This is all going to burn the gospel, according to Christ's command, is to go out and preach the gospel because where the gospel goes, its extent is as far as sin. So where the gospel goes out, it restores and it redeems. And that's what our job is, is to implement that victory. So let's look at the passage. We'll see John's defense of Jesus's humanity and physicality. And we will start with the very first verse that we talked about, which is when the Jews came, well, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, the bodies would not remain on the cross. They asked Pilate to take those bodies down. Now, <clears throat> this is a, it says here, for that Sabbath was a high day. So you have to understand, first of all, 
what the Sabbaths were. There were annual Sabbaths that were different than just the Saturdays. So if there was a high holy day that landed on a Friday, Friday and Saturday would both be Sabbaths. There were actually seven Sabbath holy days, the first and seventh days of unleavened bread, Pentecost, uh, Feast of the Trumpets, uh, the Day of Atonement, the first days of the, the tabernacle, and the last great day. These all are basically high and holy days. But the day that John was talking about was one of the three spring holy days. And since Jesus' crucifixion took place on the day of Passover, Nisan 14 in the Hebrew calendar, the high day of which he is speaking about must be the first day of unleavened bread, which falls on the day after Passover. So we wanted to bring these bodies down. Now the cross, the, cruci- the, the three days in the grave are sometimes difficult to understand because we think of it from our calendar and our week, which is, okay, Jesus died on Friday. How is he in the grave three days and three nights? The Hebrew calendar is a little bit different. Their day begins at sundown. So technically, Friday is really Thursday at 6 o'clock. So it works itself out that Jesus did, in fact, spend three days and three nights when you look at it that way. But he's talking about the fact that Jesus died on the Friday, and now that was a whole high and holy day at 6 o'clock that evening. And at the same time, it was the regular Sabbath. Now, he wanted bodies down from the cross, Because of the Deuteronomy uh, uh, law in in chapter 21, which says, it says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged on the tree is accursed of God, so that you don't defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So he's showing, he's showing these, these um, he's, he's giving us this, setting up about what's about to happen. He wants the let Pilate or the Jews want the legs of these people to be broken. So we're talking about not just Jesus, but the, also the two thieves. Those two thieves, their legs had become broken. But once they got to Jesus, they did not do that. What did they do? They pierced his side with water and with blood. <clears throat> John uh, chapter Second John verses one, uh, or Second John chapter one verses seven and ten says, "For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist." <clears throat> If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For anybody to believe that Jesus was the Gnostic Jesus, he wasn't the physical Jesus, he wasn't the human Jesus, it was enough to get that person kicked out of the house of a Christian. That's how destructive this heresy was at the time. And it's very destructive even to this day. Back in 1945, there was a very uh, big renewed interest that I believe Satan used in stirring up this Gnostic view of Jesus. There was a discovery in Egypt 
at the Nag Hammadi Library. This is a collection of very rare early Christian manuscripts and Gnostic uh, texts, including which the most popular is the Gospel of Thomas and the Apocrypha of John, not the Revelation of John. This is a different one. These were extra-biblical revelation that people said, "These these are just as valuable as the scriptures, and look what they said. You see, dualism, as we think about this today on Sanctity of Life Sunday, where churches all over the world, specifically in America, and I believe March for Life is going on now as well, we have the Sanctity of Life Sunday where we're saying we need to see the sanctity, the holiness, the preciousness of life. But did you ever wonder how we got to the point where we would allow children, for lack of a better way to say it, the unborn to be killed inside of the womb up to the very day that they were to be able to be born. It's grotesque. But if you trace back throughout the last couple of centuries, you will see a gradual turning towards the mystical and the spiritual as as Darwinism came in and science started to say that evolution was a true science and not just a theory, what we started to see was the church began to panic. And they started to get more otherworldly, more spiritual, more privatized, more closet religion. And that's what the politicians would tell us. Keep your God in your own personal and we see it when, even when the leaders and rulers now are interviewed and they say, oh, my, my, I have a strong faith, but I don't let it get involved in politics. And that to me is an oxymoron because anybody that has a strong faith is going to use that faith as the standard for how they rule and they judge. That's why almost everything in life has a component of religious religiosity to it, for a lack of a better way to say it. And so we began to take public acknowledgement of God and put him aside. Because after all, God isn't, hasn't shown up. And after all, our ultimate goal is just to get to heaven. And after all, the Bible says that the whole world is going to burn. So let's just wait and let's just get this out of here. These are all Gnostic seeds and drippings of Gnostic ideas that exonerate the spiritual and take the material world and say it's ridiculous, it's, it's, it's crazy to be able to, to have to worry about that because this world it doesn't really matter anyway. You see this throughout the, the biblical, uh, or the, um, the, the, I believe, unbiblical doctrine tenets, some tenets of dispensationalism, where God is going to come and rescue us and take us off into heaven and then the world is going to become destroyed and then there's, going, there's all different variations of it. But this all is rooted in dualism, Gnosticism, which John is trying to show us has began even in the very first century. So why is this so important to us? You see, this is so important because Jesus saved us, not so we could just go off to heaven. Jesus saved us for a purpose, just like he pulled Israel out from Abraham for a purpose. That's a picture 
of what we are to do in this world. But if we look at this world, if we look at the physicality of this world and the matter of this world, and we say it doesn't matter, then we are going to be less apt to want to change things and to get involved. We're not going to care so much about it. And I've challenged people that have this Gnostic view. And I say to them, why do you go to the abortion clinics? Why are you even standing against abortion? If it's all going to burn and God's going to come back and take us out of here and destroy the world, why don't we just go tell everyone about the gospel to get saved from hell? I mean, we should do that too. But it's sort of a, uh, it's a, to me, it's contradictory. And usually they tell me, well, these women are in a lot of sin and it's an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And I say, you could certainly share the gospel with them, but that's a life. God has put a stake in the ground. His flag is here. This is his world. The reason we don't want abortion to happen is not just because of the brutality about it, but it goes absolutely 100% against the character of God. It's wrong. And God's kingdom, his rule says, thou shall not kill. But if we think that this world doesn't really matter, why get involved in anything? Who cares about politics? Who cares about education? Who cares about entertainment? It's all going to burn anyway. Let's just praise the Lord and just wait to get out of here. And I think that that's a caricature of what the real gospel is. Jesus saved us to build for his kingdom on earth, not to take us from earth and destroy it. He saved us for the battle with the spiritual forces of darkness and the system of this world to transform it, not retreat from it. And I'm not talking about us pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and going out militantly to turn this world into a Christian world. I'm not saying that. I am saying that what we need to do is depend fully upon the power of the Holy Spirit and go out and not just preach the gospel about a gospel of grace that you are going to get off and get to heaven and rise from the dead, but realize that that gospel gives you authority to stand against the evil of the world. And that's what this doctrine of Gnosticism tries to stop us from doing. <clears throat> so don't devalue God's creation due to sin and evil. Confront it with the gospel of love. Now, so John is, again, so he, he's saying here, number two, he, he wants us to see that Jesus was physically dead because there was, a, there was a rumor going around that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that he was just sort of really beat up. And before he died, they pulled him down from the cross and he was revived in the grave. That's one of the heresies that goes out there. And of course, if Jesus wasn't physically dead, then there's no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, as Paul says, our faith is in vain and worthless. <clears throat> you see, the Romans would leave bodies on the cross to decay. Vultures and other sort of animals and rodents would crawl up and, and, and pick that body apart. And it was a way for them, as we spoke about in the past couple weeks, to, to really scare the people that were ever thinking about standing against the Roman army. So broken legs led very quickly to suffocation because you would suffocate because the person on the cross was using their leg strength to, to, to lift up their chest so that they could breathe because hanging on the cross would crush their lungs and cause them literally to choke to death and, and it's almost like drowning. 
So after a period of, of, of up and down, up and down, the weaker they got, eventually they died. Some people would stay on the cross like that for a day, two days, and sometimes even more. So what they did is they would go and break the legs to disable them from it being able to have that strength. And within minutes, they would die. <clears throat> they didn't do that to Jesus. Instead, they pierced his side and blood and water came out. Now, what's significant about that? Well, there's two things. Number one, a mixture of blood and water coming out implies that there was blood clotting. So a mixture of clotting and water means that that person is physically dead. If he wasn't dead, there would have just been blood that would come out. A living body would have just poured out blood. But secondly, this speaks of a great symbolism that was known by the Jewish people at the time. A symbolism about the time of great deliverance and redemption in Jerusalem. And of course, this is only through the Messiah, the physical Messiah, Christ's physical existence. Now, what is that? Well, if you, if you want, you, can, you don't have to, but it's in Zechariah 12, 10 to 11. Speaking of this very moment, listen, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadrimaron in the plain of Megiddo. Now, Zechariah 13, 1, right after that, we read this, we read this, in that day, a fountain will be open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. You see, Paul says, this is the first aspect of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is of first importance, he says, for us to understand that Christ died. He physically died. He didn't just rest. He physically died. He was done. No heartbeat, no blood flow, no brain activity, completely dead. Now, next week, we're going to start talking about the resurrection, so I don't want to jump too far into that. But resurrection means alive from being physically dead. Now you may say, yeah, we get that, Pat. No, but we often think maybe resurrection, is it a ghost? Is it a spirit? No, it's a physically dead person that gets raised. And so the humanity of Jesus' death, John is trying to show us that this piercing of his side of blood and water can only mean one thing. He was a real human. And that this blood was being shed, yes, for the deliverance of Jerusalem, for the deliverance of the people of Israel and those that would follow. The humanity and death of John, I'm sorry, of Jesus was real to John. And it should be real to us. If you go through every one of his writings, he does not stop defending this aspect of the gospel. First John, John 1, 1 to 3. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested 
And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. Jesus was a real physical being. Now, my question is, is is Jesus real to you? Is he real to you? Could you write this same thing? Now, I'm not asking, has has the physical Jesus come down and appeared to you? But we have a greater testimony here. Because if he did come down and appear to you, and maybe you weren't a believer in Christ, or even if you were, it wouldn't convince you of anything. It would just make you doubt probably even more whether or not what you've seen was really Jesus. Was it Satan appearing to an angel as an angel of light? Who knows? The only hope that we have for Jesus to become as real to us as he was physically to John is by going to his word, receiving his word as truth, and in faith acting on his word. As I said last week, the, the, the power of the Spirit in your life will be in direct proportion to the, your reliance on the Spirit. It's the same with Christ. They're all one. Your belief and your faith in the reality of Jesus, Him becoming a real, real person with you, in relationship with you, in communion with you, almost so much that you can smell, you can taste, you can touch, has to do with your ability to get into this word and believe this word. Don't wait for any special mystical sign, any spiritual revelation from outside. You have everything that you need right here. Let this be the fountain that pours out onto you this word right here. Now, thirdly, as we get to the, at, to the climax of this passage now, John is showing us that Jesus is enacting the Passover in person, in humanity, as a human. He's enacting the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. We see right here, <clears throat> not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. You see, Jesus was absolutely brutalized. He was brutalized. His flesh was torn apart. His face was beaten. His head was punctured with thorns. He was spat upon. And who else knows? Obviously flogged, his flesh torn apart. But during all that, not one of his bones were broken. Because you see, when you brought a a sacrifice to the priests or to the temple, they would stop you and want to examine that sacrifice. That lamb had to be perfect, not a spot, not a blemish. And especially the most important thing was that every single bone had to be in place. Could be no defect according to the the Torah's regulations. Exodus 12, 46, it shall be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. And prophesying about Jesus in Psalm 34, 19 and 20, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So at the very moment that Jesus was hanging on the cross, at the very moment that the last breath 
from his lungs came out and he said it is finished and died. At that very moment, hundreds, even thousands of Passover lambs were being sacrificed right down the mountain in the temple. Jesus was the true human lamb of God without defect. And he was sacrificed for our sin. And John is showing us here that it's not just anything or anyone that could have satisfied this. It had to be God himself fully embodying Jesus, the human Jesus. Now, this is a very difficult thing to understand. I'm not trying to make like, the, the, they call, theologians call it the hypostatic union. And that means that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now we can get that concept. But there was a guy around 300 AD named Nestorius who was called a heretic because he said that Jesus was fully God and fully man, but two natures in one. And and I have to say, that's very, very close, Nestorius, but not close enough. It's more than that. So he was rejected. That, that That was turned away. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Don't think that this is what you're seeing here a human sacrifice. This is a different sacrifice that needed to contain the humanity of God, but it couldn't have been just a human. It couldn't have just been any human. If that were the case, that's probably would have happened. God forbade the sacrifice of humans. He forbade it. That's what makes abortion, again, I'm going to keep salting it in on this day as much as I can, When one sin hits heaven, that sin of taking your child and sacrificing it on the burning hot arms of Molech and Baal, God forbade it. He was, according to Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 18.10, that was a high and holy sin. You do not destroy the image of God. You do not sacrifice human beings. Jesus sacrificed himself as God. By becoming a man, one mortal human life could not pay for the sins against an immortal God. Only God himself could die a worthy sacrifice for the sins of mankind. So this isn't a human sacrifice coming out. John's not trying to tell us this. He is saying that Jesus, fully God, was also fully human. And he's fulfilling this, he's fulfilling the Passover, becoming that Passover lamb that only he could do, only God can do, and not a bone of him was ever broken. Now, I don't know if that means that Jesus, when he was little, didn't break a leg or break an arm. Probably never did. But I'm telling you right now, the, ult- the, the point of it isn't that. So don't start thinking about that. The point of it is that at the point of sacrifice, he was holy, un- he was unblemished, and he was perfect in the eyes of God, just like that Passover lamb had to be right there that day at the temple. So this is all simultaneously happened. So what do we do about this? It's very simple. Believe on the one. Believe in the Passover lamb. Think about it. You're in Egypt. You've been there for 400 years in slavery. The Egyptians have have been abusing you physically. They've been taking advantage of you in any way. You are their slaves. 
And then God sends a deliverer. And you're scared because these Egyptians, they just doubled your workload and they expected the same results. They've been physically abusive to you. And now this guy Moses has come in and he's performing these miracles. And then finally, he tells everybody, look, get into the house tonight. Get that spotless lamb. Do it quickly. Massacre it. Cut it. Don't break a bone. Pour out its blood and paint it over the doorposts. And then the angel of death is going to come and fly over tonight. And he's going to kill every one of the firstborn of Egypt because Egypt has taken God's firstborn and there's not letting go. And tonight's going to be the night. See, that's where each one of us are right now. We're in that house. We got the blood of Christ over us. For those of you that believe in Jesus. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you're standing in a house where the angel of death is going to pass over and he's going to look down and he's going to see no covering. And he's going to look down at you and you're going to say, well, I was a good person and I did really good things. And my sin wasn't really that bad compared to him and her. And by that time, you're already going to have been completely wiped out because you didn't have the blood of Christ over your life. So do you trust in the Passover lamb? Do you trust in the blood fully for that sacrifice to cover your sin? See, to summarize, Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. And as we will see, he really, really rose from the dead. Amen. Amen. Because the word became flesh, not a ghost, not a phantom, not an illusion, we must see that God's creation is good. And do not devalue it. I'm not trying to say become an environmentalist and worship it. I'm saying become somebody who values the, real, the present reality, the activity of God involved in his creation, and the fact that he is renewing this through, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through you. You need, so what do you do? You need to go to God and see what work he has for you. There are, I was an army reservist, right? Paul's a national guardsman. You go on the weekends, right? You do your duty when you're called. That's not how Christianity works. There's no Christian reservists where you work only on Sunday. God put you on this earth for full-time Christianity. He wants you to carry Christ around everywhere you go. Dark places, bright places, cold places, warm places. Wherever you are, there he is. And he has work for you to do. Live through him in your physical body for this world and for the next. See, we can live through Jesus only because he has affinity with us as, human, as a human being. Otherwise, he could not be our representative nor be the first fruits of the new creation. 1 John 4, 9 says, this is the love of God. This is, was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. John also tells us that we must walk as Jesus walked. That doesn't mean with a certain strut. All right, 
certain pace. No, it means that our life, we should strive in our life to emulate only one person, Jesus. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. And finally, we must die as he died. Romans 6, 9, I'm sorry, 6, 10, and 11. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. See, you, you, you've died to sin once and for all when you believe, but now the life that you live, you live unto God. And he says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. That's what I mean by dying. You're dead to sin. You're dead to your plans. You're dead to your agendas. You're dead to what you believe to be. Your mind says, oh yeah, this is pragmatically what must be gone. No, go to the word of God. Fill your, 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 you have the Holy Spirit in you and you trust. And you're dead to sin. You're putting, you're putting away those things which are behind and looking forward and running towards the prize. And he promises that he'll carry you to that very end. Reckon yourself dead to the world and to sin. <clears throat> you know, John, again here, he uses this phrase, so you will believe. Yes, yeah, so we will believe the physical Jesus, but he wrote this whole book so that you will believe that Jesus, the true, correct, real Jesus, is the Son of God. And belief only comes through faith in what Jesus did, yes, but in faith in the person of Jesus Christ and in what he has done. He came, he fulfilled all the scriptures as he took the, the, people, the, those, the people on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, he took them from, from Moses through the law and the Psalm and the prophet. He explained them all as it pertained to him. And, and you believe that Jesus, that God sent this Jesus to fulfill those scriptures, but you also believe that he died on a cross according to the scriptures to pay for your sin. And you believe he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven royally enthroned at the right hand of the father. And by believing that message, he promises to change you into a new creature. He promises to make you new. He promises to take hold of your life and steer it. Is it going to be pretty? No, it may not be that pretty. We just prayed for Denny Green. He's a father of 13 children. He's about my age, 50, 55 years old. I don't know, maybe a little older. He's been in pro-life ministry for almost 30 years, every day, full time, eight hours a day at the abortion clinics, going into China, preaching the gospel, in midnight to six in the morning to Chinese leaving gospel tracks on a thing. And guess what? He's, he's got stage four cancer. Now, I haven't talked to Denny in a while, but I can guarantee you he's praising the Lord through it all. Even though he knows that he's got a tough road ahead of him. Maybe his work is finished. Maybe it's not. Maybe God's going to do a miracle. But the bottom line is, is faith in Christ. That's what's going to deliver you. That's what's going to carry you as a human through death, no fear of death, and as a human with a renewed body when you are raised, where there is no more pain, where there is no more sin, and the victory is complete.
Well, let's stop there. We'll pray. Father, we do lift up Denny to you, God, and I thank you for his ministry and his example, and I pray for his children, Lord, and um, uh, I know that you're going to take care of them. Please give us faith during this time, Lord. Um, I pray, Father, that you would uh, open up our minds, open up our hearts to the, the reality of who Jesus truly is, Lord. Let us learn deeper and deeper and deeper. Let us come to know him more and more in his humanity and in his deity. We thank you for sending him to save us. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing our last song, which has created me a new heart. I took the words right out of your mouth.